On April 26, 2008, a commuter train from Salt Lake City, Utah to the Ogden area, about 45 minutes to the north, was opened. Seven of the eight planned stops opened on time, with the eighth station, the end of the line station in Pleasant View, delayed due to workers being called to repair railroad tracks damaged by a landslide near Oak Ridge, Oregon. The train was called the Front Runner, as its route was to cover the heart of the Wasatch Front. Front Runner currently runs from Provo through Salt Lake City and northward to the Ogden area in Weber County. In the summer of 2008, I wanted to take a ride on the train to check it out. My friend Derek loves all things railroads and trains, and I have a friend Drew who is reliant on public transportation to get from A to B. So we all resolved to take a ride on the train to Ogden to attend an Ogden Raptors baseball game at Lindquist Field, which, when it was built in 1997, was named by BaseballParks.com as having the best view in all of baseball. Beyond the outfield are some of the older buildings in Ogden, leading up to Washington Avenue. And beyond that is the majestic Wasatch Mountain Range in the background. At the time we took the frontrunner train to see them play in 2008, the Raptors were a minor league baseball rookie league affiliate of the Los Angeles Dodgers. In fact, back in the late 60s, the Ogden baseball team at that point was called the Ogden Dodgers. The 1968 Ogden Dodgers team then included Steve Garvey, Bobby Valentine, Bill Buckner, and manager Tommy Lasorda who were part of a run that saw Ogden sweep four consecutive Pioneer League championships. Bill Buckner would go on to live in baseball infamy as first baseman for the Boston Red Sox as they led the Mets three games to two in the 1986 World Series. He was credited, perhaps unfairly, with being the cause for the loss of Game 6 when he let an easy ground ball go through his legs at first base in extra innings and the Mets went on to win Games 6 and 7 making them the 1986 World Series champions. Tommy Lasorda went on to become the beloved manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, where he would lead the team to a World Series championship against the Oakland Athletics in 1988. In 1979 and 1980, Ogden's baseball team was called the Ogden A's and would feature a young player by the name of Ricky Henderson, who would go on to steal 1,406 bases in his career more than anyone else in Major League Baseball history. He'd be crowned World Series champ in 1989 with the Oakland A's and again in 1993 with the Toronto Blue Jays. Henderson was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2009. The field at Oakland Coliseum, where the A's currently play, was renamed Ricky Henderson Field in 2017. A great honor for Henderson, who grew up in the Oakland area and would sneak into A's games at the Coliseum as a kid. Derek, Drew, and I enjoyed some great baseball on that night in July of 2008 when we took the front-runner train to Ogden. We had dinner at the Iggy's on Washington Boulevard, and after the game, we went to the Megaplex and saw Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Next to the Iggy's and just east of the Megaplex theaters in Ogden is a Five Guys Burgers and Fries, which sits essentially at 2323 Washington, the site of the former hi-fi shop owned by Brent Richardson in 1974, where in this episode, our story continues as resolution is brought to the case of the hi-fi murders. Resolution with scars that remain. This is Saints and Sinners, True Crime and the History of the West, The Ogden Hi-Fi Murders, Part 3, The Scars Remain.
It was nearly 10.30 p.m. on a Monday night in late April in Ogden when police officers Kevin Youngberg and Gail Bowcutt first got the call that something was awry at the hi-fi shop. Mrs. Walker and her boy had walked up to the back door of the shop to check on Oren and Stan, and they heard anguished moans and screams from the other side of the door coming from the basement. They had broken into the shop and called the police. Nothing could prepare officers Youngbird and Bowcut for what they were about to see as they raced down Kiesel Avenue and turned west on 23rd Street. They'd been making regular rounds around town when the dispatcher had radioed them to investigate unknown trouble at 2323 Washington Boulevard. The patrol car crept into the gravel alley behind the hi-fi shop with its headlights turned off and no siren being sounded. A husky boy was standing near the back door. The officers got out of the car and the boy yelled, They're all inside! The officers hurried across the gravel and neared the door. The door jam and molding around the door were splintered. Upstairs in the shop, the lights were on, but leading down to the stairs in the basement was a black void. In the light ahead, the officers found Mrs. Walker and Oren walking back and forth and frantic near the front of the shop. Oren's hair was matted with blood, and the officers noticed what they thought was a pen on top of Oren's ear. They're downstairs, yelled Oren. Who? asked the officers. Four of them, said Oren. They've all been shot. Shoulder to shoulder, the officers headed for the stairs and descended into the dark basement, not even thinking whether or not the perpetrators might still be in the building. Halfway down the stairs, Youngbird turned on his flashlight. In the path of light from the flashlight at the bottom of the stairs lay a blonde-haired boy, his green eyes open, and he stared directly up at the ceiling. He was clearly still alive, but red scars trailed across his face. Emanating from his mouth was a sound gargling and pained like neither of the officers had ever heard. They continued into the room. They passed the body of a woman laying on her back and facing up at the ceiling, barely breathing. They came across two more bodies, the body of a girl nude with a blood stain around her head, and in the far corner was the body of a young man, his hands tied behind his back. A stain of blood surrounded his body. The latter two were not moving at all and were clearly dead. It all seemed surreal. Neither of the officers had ever seen anything even close to this in their careers patrolling the streets of Ogden. The smell in the basement also struck the officers. It was the smell of blood and vomit mixed with the smell of new stereos. Youngberg quickly turned to Bowcut. We're going to need an ambulance. Orne was standing on the stairs behind the officers and let them know the ambulance had already been called. The officers asked who had done this. Orne responded that it was two black men. Youngberg checked the pulses of Michelle and Stan to verify that they were indeed deceased, and he noticed Michelle's engagement ring still on her finger. For years, this image would haunt him. They then began to look after Courtney and Carol, who were still holding on to life, just barely. A third officer arrived at the scene, and Bowcut met him at the top of the stairs. Call for assistance, he yelled. There are a bunch of dead people in here. Warren hurried over to the workbench in the stockroom and was looking for some scissors or a knife so that he could cut his son's stand loose and help him. Youngberg put his arm on Oren's shoulder. Your boy is dead, he said. I'm so very sorry, sir. If you'll go on outside and wait for the ambulance, we'll take things from here. When the officers began attending to Courtney, they at first thought that he had been shot in the lung. His breathing was extremely labored and intermittent. They cut his shirt open and noticed no bullet wounds in the area of his lungs. 
They rolled Courtney over to help with his breathing and noticed the bullet wound in the back of his head. They rolled Carol over to assist with her breathing as well and cut them both loose. Carol wasn't breathing as well as Courtney was, but there were still signs of life. Sergeant Dave White was next to arrive, and when he was later interviewed about the experience, he described that it felt like there were wall-to-wall bodies. It was such a small room, and nearly the entire floor was covered with bodies laying side by side. The ambulance arrived, and Bocut yelled that they needed two stretchers downstairs right away, one for Courtney and the other one for Carol. The paramedics tried to attend to their wounds on scene, but realized that they would both die if they didn't get to the hospital right away. Officer Youngberg made his way back upstairs because he was coughing from the smell in the basement. There, near the top step, on the edge of the carpet, he found a 25 caliber bullet, still jacketed. He photographed the bullet and stooped down and picked it up. Youngberg made his way outside and stood with Sergeant White, who commented that in his 17 years of police service, he had never seen anything like this. White gave Youngberg a cigarette and told him to try to relax. Youngberg took a few puffs of smoke before he even realized that he wasn't even a smoker. Orn and his wife, as well as his younger son, were standing over against the wall, waiting and watching the paramedics do their work. Youngberg walked over and began questioning them. They told the officer that Stan had been working in the shop and Orn had come to the shop to check on him because he was over two hours late coming home. And that's how Orn was caught up in the mess of this night. Then Mrs. Walker explained that she had come to the shop with her younger boy to check on Stan and Orrin as it was getting late. She said the intruders were gone by the time she arrived with her younger son, and when they heard Orrin yelling from the basement, they had kicked in the door. While talking to Orrin, Youngberg wondered why he had a pen behind his ear. It was only when he looked closer that the pen moved when Orrin talked, and that part of the pen was actually lodged in his throat. Within minutes... Courtney and Kathy were rushed upstairs on stretchers and out into the alley and into the ambulance. The ambulance raced out of the parking lot on its way to St. Benedict Hospital, which had been opened in 1946 and stood at 3000 Polk Avenue in Ogden. Most of the major streets in Ogden are named after U.S. presidents. Oren was put into the second ambulance and his wife followed behind him in her car on the way to McKay D. Hospital. Shortly after that, the first members of the press arrived in the alley and began to survey the surroundings. Youngberg was caught in the bright lights of news cameras that night when all he wanted to do was be alone. Byron Nesbitt was still at home and had no idea what had happened when he got a call from a friend in Salt Lake City asking if he'd heard the news. Byron said he hadn't been watching TV and was on call so he hadn't heard anything. His friend told him that five people had been shot at the hi-fi shop, his nephew Brent's store. He rushed to the hi-fi shop and went to the front door on Washington. No one would open the door, so he rushed around back and a police officer stopped him at the curb. Then Byron saw Carol's station wagon parked up against the building and his heart sank. He could barely breathe. He knew something was very wrong. Byron ran to the back door of the shop where he was stopped again and told he couldn't go in. He asked how many people were down in the basement. At the door was Detective Newey, who knew Byron, and he said there were only two people down there now. My wife's car is over there, said Byron, and my son's car is parked right next to it. I know they're in there. Let me go inside. They've taken a woman and boy up to St. Benedict's, the officer told him. Is it my wife and son? Byron said. Your wife and son are no longer in the basement, said Newey, but if you won't believe me, I'll let you go in quickly and see for yourself. 
Just don't touch anything and stop halfway down the stairs and come right back up. Byron followed the officer down to the fourth step. The lighting in the basement was dim and police photographers were taking a myriad of shots of the basement, their flashbulbs going off. Byron could see that there were indeed only two bodies still on the floor, that of a young man and a young woman, and both appeared to be dead from gunshot wounds to the head. Byron knew this wasn't his wife and son, and he quickly ran back outside. He had a ray of hope and quickly ran past the officers and made his way back to his Mercedes. He raced to St. Benedict's as he figured the woman and boy had been sent there in the ambulance and they had to be Courtney and Carol. Byron arrived at the emergency room of St. Benedict's and yelled for his family. He asked if they were there. He quickly made his way to the ICU and asked about his wife. I'm sorry, sir. She's dead, said Andy Tolsma, the medical technician that was on duty that night. They rushed down the hall into the ICU and swung the door open, where Byron Nesbitt saw Courtney clinging to life in a glass cubicle. Dr. Wallace, then on duty, grabbed hold of Byron and told him that Courtney had been shot and still had a bullet in his head, also that it looks like he was forced to drink some sort of acid, which caused burns around his mouth and down his throat, into his esophagus and on into his stomach. He said that Courtney was nearly dead when he was brought in, but was now showing signs of life and it seemed like some oxygen was getting through to his lungs. Byron asked again about Carol, and a nurse walked up and reminded him again that Carol was dead, and that she was down in the morgue already. Dr. Wallace said he would let Byron go down to the morgue to identify her. They made their way down to the basement and down the long hallway and unlocked the doors to the morgue. They made their way to the metal drawer where Carol lay and slid it open. It was indeed Carol, and even before she was all the way out, Byron recognized that it was her based on the clothing she was wearing. When she was completely visible, it was apparent to Byron that both she and Courtney had been through a torturous ordeal. He identified her, and they made their way out of the morgue. He realized right away that if Courtney didn't survive, his family of six would be cut down to four in just a matter of hours. He looked at the doctor and said, Do everything you can to save my son. Back at the hi-fi shop, all of the bodies had been removed and the officers were piecing together the physical evidence. In clear plastic bags, they sealed up the cords used to bind the victims. They found some 25 caliber cartridges that had randomly been ejected. They also found some 38 caliber slugs embedded in the carpet. They searched for the container of liquid that might have caused the burns to the victims' faces, but they couldn't find it. At McKay D. Hospital, Oren Walker had been treated in the emergency room for his wounds. The six-inch ballpoint pen had been extracted from his ear, and he was treated for the gunshot wound to the back of his head and the chemical burns around his mouth. The pen was dropped into a plastic bag and taken into evidence. The officers at McKay D. interviewed Oren when he came out of surgery, and he recounted the entire evening from when he arrived at the hi-fi shop to when he left in the ambulance. Oren would be the star witness. He described the two men as black. He hadn't realized there was a third, Keith Roberts, out in the van. He said one of the men was tall and one was short. He said the shorter one was husky. He estimated both of the men were in their early 20s. When he entered the shop from the alley, he said he had to walk around a van that was pulled right up to the back door. He said the van was light in color and greenish yellow. The officers were piecing together in their minds whether or not they had ever come across any criminals capable of doing something like this. 
One of the officers, an officer Moore, recalled that the previous fall, he had investigated a murder on base at Hill Air Force Base, where a man by the name of Edward Jefferson was discovered in his apartment with what appeared to be a bayonet wound directly to his face. He had been stabbed while in his sleep, and the bayonet had gone in so deep that it nearly came out the back of his head. Pierre Dale Selby had been suspected by Moore of having committed the murder, and in fact was interviewed about it on several occasions. The authorities knew it was Selby who did it, and made note of his cold demeanor, but they couldn't come up with enough evidence to charge him for the murder. The next day, Tuesday afternoon, April 23rd, a couple of kids at Hill Air Force Base, 12-year-old Charlie Marshall and 11-year-old Walter Grissom, were looking for pop bottles in a dumpster so they could trade them in for some money. They found the driver license and checkbook of Michelle Ainsley. It was actually sitting in plain sight on top of most of the garbage. The news of the robbery and murders was such a big deal by that point that one of the boys recognized that Michelle had been one of the victims. They called the police and the rest of the dumpster was searched. The IDs and wallets of some of the other victims were found in the same dumpster. A crowd of people even formed while the dumpster was being searched, and one of the officers stated that he had an intuition that maybe the killer or killers were in the crowd. The crowd dissipated and he just couldn't be sure. The hi-fi murders were all over the news on Tuesday, April 23rd. An airman, Corporal Fisher from Hill Air Force Base, sought out police and told them that William Andrews had said something to him about some plans he had to rob the hi-fi shop on Washington Boulevard. He said that he was almost certain that Selby and Andrews had been the killers at the robbery the night before. He even said that their van was a light bluish-green color. The officer asked him if he'd be willing to testify in court. He thought about it for a moment and said, Yep. Things were closing in. Corporal Fisher stated that he lived in the same barracks as Selby and Andrews, and he told the police which units they lived in specifically. Barracks 351, where the killers lived, turned out to be just 30 feet from the dumpster where the items were found. The officers wondered whether Selby and Andrews were actually in their barracks watching out the window as they searched the dumpster. Just then, someone hopped in the van identified as the vehicle of Selby and Andrews and tried to leave. They're trying to escape, yelled one agent. The van went about a mile before they were stopped by security agents and ordered to get out of the van at gunpoint. It was only then that the security agent realized that it wasn't Selby and Andrews, but two other airmen who owned an almost identical van. The officers then realized that Selby and Andrews were likely in the barracks somewhere. They ordered a raid on the barracks, and they made their way up to Andrews' room on the second floor. This group of eight detectives was led by Deloy White. As they approached the door to Andrews' room, the group split up, and half of them waited on the opposite side of the door just in case there was a gunfight. With everyone in position, White tapped on the door with the barrel of his shotgun. There was no answer from inside, but after a moment, the doorknob turned and the door opened slightly. Through the crack in the door, White could see a man's face. The man was standing only a couple feet from the door. White entered quickly and realized he was pointing his gun at William Andrews. Andrews was read his rights and taken into custody. He didn't resist arrest. As they were walking from Andrews' room, another airman stepped out and said, Pierre's not in his room. He's on the ground floor, southwest corner. The officers made their way to the first floor southwest corner. They knocked on room 106, but the man who answered wasn't Pierre. Then, suddenly across the hall, another door burst open and a man ran out. Officers chased after that man and realized that wasn't Pierre either. Then, 
they looked inside the door that crept open and noticed a short black man sitting on the sofa facing the opposite wall. He looked like he was tying his shoe. The officer entered the room and ordered the man to put both hands on the wall. He realized that it was Pierre. Now put your hands behind your back, Pierre, said the officer. Pierre was calmly taken into custody. The two were taken to separate rooms for questioning. They were asked where they had been the night before. They said they had been on base watching a screening of Black Belt Jones. The two had in fact seen Black Belt Jones together, but it was on Sunday night, not Monday night. Then Andrews surprised the officer when he said that he had been in the hi-fi shop on Saturday and had handled a lot of the stereo equipment as he walked around the store, so if they found fingerprints, that was the reason. It was clear that whenever Pierre was brought up in Andrews' interrogation, Andrews showed that he was deathly afraid of Pierre and was afraid to say anything wrong that might be used against him. Search warrants were obtained very quickly and the barracks of Andrews and Selby were searched. In Selby's room, they found an advertisement for the hi-fi shop as well as some of the other shops around the area, including Inkley's, where Courtney had picked up the photos the day before. On each of these advertisements was a list of merchandise in order from most expensive to least expensive. Down the hall in Andrew's room, police found a pair of surgical gloves. Inside the garbage can were a clear plastic album covers with the hi-fi shop label. George Throckmorton, who was heading the search, said that in order for a thorough search to be done, they would need to look under the carpeting in the rooms as well. One of the officers said, you can't hide a stereo under a rug. Under one of the corners of the rug in Selby's room, Throckmorton found a rental agreement between Pierre and Wasatch Storage. Wasatch Storage was on 26th and Wall, only blocks from the hi-fi shop. Pierre had rented Unit 2 the previous day, April 22nd, the day of the murders. They then obtained a search warrant for Unit 2 of Wasatch Storage. The key to the padlock was found on Pierre when he was arrested. They opened the door to the storage unit at 26th and Wall, and there, glistening in front of them, was all of the stolen stereo equipment from the night before. Also, nestled in the corner, was a black and yellow car mat. Wrapped up in the mat was a small green drinking cup and a large bottle, only half full, with a label that read, Tough on clogs, won't hurt pipes. It was the bottle of liquid Drano used on the victims the night before. The physical evidence was beginning to pile up. The joint trial of Selby, Andrews, and Roberts for first-degree murder began on October 15, 1974 in Farmington, Utah. On November 16, Selby and Andrews were convicted of all charges. Roberts was convicted only of robbery. Pierre, Dale Selby, and William Andrews were given death sentences. Roberts was sentenced to imprisonment and was paroled in 1987 when he moved to Oklahoma to live and work. Orrin Walker was the star witness during the trial. Due to his amnesia and brain damage due to his wounds, Courtney Nesbitt was unable to testify. His father Byron did testify. Orrin testified that though Andrews was present, Selby was the one who actually committed all the murders. An owner of a different stereo shop in Leighton, Utah also testified. He stated that a few weeks prior to April 22nd, Selby and Andrews, as part of a group of six men, came into his store and caused trouble. He asked them to leave and they wouldn't. It was thought by many that there were in fact six men who went to the hi-fi shop on April 22nd to rob it. That there were two vans, 
each one with a driver, and that four men carried the stereo equipment out of the store. It was never proven that there were three men besides Roberts, Shelby, and Andrews, so that was only hearsay. Neither the 25 caliber semi-automatic or the 38 caliber revolver used in the robbery were ever found. In 1987, Selby had a hearing where he said that they did not bring the Drano with them that night, and he had never planned on using it, but that he found it in the bathroom of the hi-fi shop and then decided to use it. Here is Selby in his own words. I just, you know, just continued shooting. I figured, you know, I, I shot Mrs. Nesbitt and I just started shooting everybody else. When I was using the bathroom, I saw the Drano in there. At that point, I remember the, the, the noise, you know, they were making, uh, the sound of, you know, the sound of pain, really. It was proven that the killers did indeed get the idea for the Drano from seeing the Dirty Harry film Magnum Force several times, and that was brought up at trial as well. On August 28, 1987, Selby was executed by lethal injection. He was the first person to be executed in Utah since Gary Gilmore died by firing squad in 1977. Before his death, Selby said, I'll be glad when it's over. It was big news. There were bars in Ogden holding execution parties. On July 30th, 1992, William Andrews was executed by lethal injection. Many debated the fairness or equality in that decision as he had only been proven to be present for the murders, but did not commit them himself. Courtney Nesbitt went on to live the best life he could. He had a job and eventually got married. He died in Seattle, Washington in 2002 at the age of 44. He's buried at Washington Heights Memorial Park in South Ogden, Utah, next to his mother, Carol. Oren Walker, the star witness, died in the year 2000 at the age of 69. He's also buried at Washington Heights Memorial Park, as is Michelle Ainsley. Stanley Walker was buried at the All to Rest Memorial Park in Ogden, Utah. For years, the murders affected race relations in the area for several reasons. The black killers, the white victims, William Andrews receiving the death penalty when it was Selby who actually committed the murders. This still goes down as one of the most difficult murders to talk about in Utah or anywhere for that matter. In 1987, at the time of Pierre Dale Selby's execution, the ballpoint pen and the Drano container were shown on the news. Evidence of human cruelty. Reminders that love always wins and cruelty never pays. I'm Chad Mortensen. Thank you for listening to Saints and Sinners, True Crime and the History of the West. Mm-hmm.